Okay, okay. Welcome to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And this week, so excited to have with me a guest that I met in Utah, but of course is from Southern California because, you know, (laughs) that's how it happens is you meet your neighbors someplace else completely different. I'm just going to say this person, DJ, is quite amazing. And I was really, really floored by his story and the work that he's been doing in the community. So DJ, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is DJ Chuang, and I'm thrilled to be here. I'm a podcaster at UracingShame.com, and I have lived experience with bipolar disorder. I'm Asian American of Chinese descent, came to US when I was eight, and 48 years later, I'm 56 years old, and recently started a nonprofit initiative called Christian Asian Mental Health, and also I'm a board member of Asian Mental Health Collective, where we have a Facebook group with 61,000 members that feel supported and safe to share their mental health struggles as Asian Americans. So it's quite remarkable what we've been able to do in just a few years in helping people through their mental health recovery. Wow. Okay, wait, 61,000? members did you just say that mm-hmm. yes and it none up, of this yeah <laughs> it went up a thousand since we last talked okay which was literally like a week ago <laughs> <laughs> yes so and, and all of this you do like like the facebook group and um all of this is on your own time mm-hmm. on your own dime volunteer yes volunteer and you're making such an impact like how do you do that I- i'm just trying to imagine 61,000 people on a Facebook group. How did you even do this? Well, it was two other people that started the group, and I'm the third person that's helping moderate the group. But Uh it really is the crowdsourcing of a whole community of people that really make it work. And so friends tell a friend, and then the marketing on social media, which is also volunteer, helps get the word out. And as people discover this safe place to share, then they feel free to participate and the engagement just grows and grows and snowballs. And that's kind of the magic of social media. I think that's why it's been such a magnet for connecting with Asian and Asian Americans around the world. So it's primarily North American, but it does have a number of people outside the country as well. Just amazing that people have learned to be supportive because we also do have to moderate our posts to prevent the trolls and to prevent the invalidating comments and people that might be spamming. And so just like social media on Twitter, which has become kind of a chaotic place, uh, we have to do some active work in managing and keeping it a safe place for people to share and feel supported. Wow. Wow. And so um, are you finding that in general, in the Chinese community, there are not a lot of safe spaces to go where people don't know where to go, especially mm-hmm. to talk about sort of their mental health struggles or yes. like they're not sure. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. As people, as people of color, mental health is just not a common part of our conversation or, I mean, it's not in any culture for that matter, but it's extra difficult for those from Asian backgrounds and Asian cultures and Asian families because we have 
many generations of never talking about mental health. And the Asian culture very much values presenting their face and mm -hmm. their social status. And so it is not a socially acceptable thing to share your family struggles or weaknesses or places where you don't have something good to show to honor your family name. And so as second generation immigrants, whether born in America or came to America when they were a child, they're exposed to the American culture where people are more free to express themselves and to share more of themselves freely. It comes in such a tension and clash with the Asian culture that is very reserved about their uh, personal matters. And we, in Asian cultures, we don't have a lot of language for our feelings. And some cultures don't even have language for psychology and mental health. And so when we have these feelings and we are just as human as everybody else, as a culture, we learn to suppress it and stuff it. We actually have language in Chinese specifically to swallow our bitterness. Wow. And for generations, that's how they've survived, but it keeps people from really becoming healthy and thriving. And so I think um, from the Asian mindset, we know how to survive, yeah. but we don't know how to really increase our quality of life and really deal with the elephant in the room and the challenges of life and become healthier and better. And so that's where having a safe place, even online, has become such a relief for people to realize they're not alone and it's okay to talk about our feelings in a safe place. And then people give each other resources and support and encouragement and helps them to take the next step towards health instead of despair. And do you think, okay, so before I ask my next question, I have like so many questions, but mm -hmm. um, it's so interesting to me because uh, I think, you know, there are some similarities in my family's, you know, being mm -hmm. African-American about, you know, we don't use the word saving face per se, but certainly, mm -hmm. and I've talked about this with somebody who's um, Latinx about sort of, mm -hmm. you know, not airing your dirty laundry. Mm -hmm. Again, not that having a mental health condition is dirty or anything like that, but it's it's this idea that you don't let people know the struggles that you're going through. Um, mm -hmm. You keep that in the house. You, you keep mm -hmm. that inside, right? Yes. And um, and that's exactly how we say, you see, don't air your dirty laundry. And there's a mm -hmm. similar term in um, Spanish um, that's about sort of, you know, not putting it out there on the line, so to speak, on the, on the laundry line, like not airing mm -hmm. your dirty laundry. And I'm like, yes. okay, wow, this is amazing that across different cultures, this is sort of what's enculturated in us about sort of showing the strong side of you, the, mm -hmm. the leadership side of you, the positive side of you, the other side, like other people can't see, you got to keep that inside. You don't share mm -hmm. that with other people. Does yes. that, does that resonate a little bit? Oh, very much. We just have different terms and different metaphors we use, yeah. but in Asian cultures, it's saving face and honoring the family name. Yeah. Wow. wow. And we also use the don't air dirty laundry thing too, but yeah. The ones I recall as a child hearing a lot of in my family of origin was the saving face and honoring the family name. And so the typical issues that come up in our subtle Asian mental health is the name of the Facebook group. It's a private group. So we only allow members in who have already been on Facebook for at least six months so that we know mm -hmm. these are active people and they have a picture in their profile. 
so we don't avoid the bots and bad actors. And the common themes are very much relationships and family. That's mm. very much part of the Asian and Asian American identity. Those are very, very valuable things rather than accomplishments. And so the family tension really hurts us deeply. The the group helps to navigate and provide some encouragement that, yeah, yeah, there's some things about our culture that are just really hard to navigate, but we'll get through it as we learn to set healthy boundaries and as we remove ourselves from abusive situations and realize that there's help outside of our immediate family that's okay to receive. Yeah, Those are all hard yeah. things to navigate, but those are kind of the common things. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I was also thinking about sort of, you know, the collectivist nature, mm. you know, of uh, the similarities between sort of um, African, African-American and mm -hmm. Chinese and Asian mm -hmm. and other groups that are quite collectivist, quite family oriented. Mm -hmm. And I know like when I went into therapy, there was all of this, you know, I, I couldn't understand this, this concept of individuation Mm -hmm. Because I was mm -hmm. hearing it as, you know, you know, be an individual outside of your family. Like you need to be yourself outside of your family. You don't always have to agree with your family. Do what your family says. Blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking, wait, what? Um, that seems quite disrespectful. <laughs> you yeah. know, there was something disrespectful about that in my mind about sort of how the the connection to family is so critically important to be outside of it. I couldn't conceptualize what that really meant. I understand mm -hmm. it now that I can be my own self even within the family structure and even having respect for and connection to, especially a family that's supportive. I'm very lucky. I have a very supportive family. Mm. But, you know, when you were going through your own struggles, did you initially have the ability to talk to your family about it or were there concerns for you about that? Oh, there was definitely concern and there was definitely challenges. So when I first di diagnosed, it took maybe a year or two before I shared with them my diagnosis. Now, my wife and my son knew about my diagnosis because they, they were safer. I took the time to get well. So it took me about a year after my diagnosis to get stabilized on medication and talk therapy to feel normal again before I approached my mom and dad to share with them my diagnosis as bipolar. And then they look up their Chinese dictionary and tried to look up the family history. And they initially, we were met with denial that, no, you, you couldn't have this diagnosis. Uh, we don't have any of that in our family history. It just doesn't make sense. And it took a number of years after that before they accepted the diagnosis as something that was helpful to me living well and taking care of myself. Although they, out of their desire for sharing care and concern is they wanted me to get off the medication and they wanted me to find alternative treatments. But I stuck with what I had because it was working and mm -hmm. I know the instability that can come if you're constantly tinkering around trying to find a quote unquote better solution. So mm -hmm. uh, my, my wisdom over 22 years of managing my self-care is once I find something working, let's stick with it for a while. And, and not mess with it. And yeah. that's how I've gotten through over the years. So what are you doing with some of the other work? Um, you know, you have Erasing the Shame and the Chinese American Christian Asian Mental Health Group. <laughs> uh, I mean, hey, when I first met you, it was like, 
wait, how many different things are you doing? So, yeah. So, so talk a little bit too about some of the other things you're yeah. doing. And I'm curious too about the podcast as a podcaster. Yeah. Well, I counted 10, so <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to name all 10, but I'm uh, by day. What pays the bills is I'm a freelance digital strategy consultant. And then the volunteering thing I mentioned, podcasting, a Facebook group, and then this nonprofit initiative that is called Christian Asian Mental Health. That's only a couple weeks old, and we want that to be a network and a collaboration to really help churches become a safe place for supporting and caring for those that are in recovery from mental health. And I just learned this recently. There's a new book out by Dr. Thomas Insel, who was the director of the National Institute for Mental Health. Phenomenal, influential psychiatrist, uh, decades of experience in the mental health system. And he realized when it came to especially severe mental illness, that just having medicine and therapy was not enough. That recovery required people, place, and purpose. And out of my experience, I've learned that people with lived experiences can really help others recover in their journey too through support groups. And so that's mm -hmm. something I really want to mobilize and activate for Asian American churches where it's really tough to talk about the topic of mental health. So the podcast helps open that up. And then through my relationships and networking with Asian American churches to begin helping pastors and church leaders to talk about it in their sermons and their uh, stories of lived experiences and seminars, and ultimately have support groups that can really help people experience their recovery and support as they live better lives with mental health challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, um, you know, so like, um, I usually say like, you know, I give snaps, claps, thumbs up for mm. yes, 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 is sort of mm -hmm. my like, but, but yes, Y-A-A-S-S-S-S-S, exclamation point, exclamation point, right? Uh, awesome. um, and, uh, you know, thinking back again, when I work for the Department of Mental Health in Los Angeles, and we have a peer resource center, and that peer mm. resource center was one of the only ones that was, well, it is the only one that's in the headquarters of LACDMH. Mm -hmm. And that really is in the middle of Koreatown, right? Smack yes. dab in the middle of Koreatown. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed when I started working, you know, for the department and we go down to the peer resource center and sort of hang out and see who was coming in and see how the peers, you know, were, were uh, you know, providing services and supporting the community. I noticed that there were no Koreans coming in. <laughs> And mm. I thought, well, we're sitting right in the mm. middle of Koreatown and we're not really serving our own community right here. And, um, you know, I think I told you this, but I, I don't recall, but I, you know, I lived in Korea for several years um, mm -hmm. as a young person. And so, you know, speak enough Korean to be a wee bit dangerous, not, not too dangerous, but just enough. And um, I really wanted to figure out what we could be doing better to be an open community space and safe space for mm -hmm. the Korean community to in anybody, anybody, but particularly mm -hmm. since we're in the heart of Koreatown, like, mm -hmm. hello, we're here for you in ways that we need to be. And that was the question. How did we need to be available? So with one of the uh, licensed uh, staff uh, folks who was assigned to also support the Peer Resource Center, um, and he's also Korean, we, we talked about what we could do. And so he's very involved in the church. And so mm -hmm. he invited 
Korean ministers to come in and hold a meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, they needed to like come together and hold like monthly meetings or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. They came in and we gave them space to actually, you know, hold monthly meetings in the peer resource center so that they could see sort of that, you know, what does mental health look like when people are actively in recovery? And, um, you know, what are people with lived experience now working? What are they doing and how are they working and how are they supporting mm-hmm. others? And so the next thing you know, we had a, a a Korean community resource group come in and say, we want a resource table. So they had a resource mm-hmm. table. So we were trying, you know, finding all sorts of creative ways mm-hmm. to uh, meet the community where they are and mm-hmm. providing resources that possibly they needed that may not even start with mental health. Oh, you need a meeting space? Yeah, come on. We got meeting space, right? That's great. Yeah. And then um, for the Korean Resource Center, they would say, yeah, you need to come meet me over here, uh, you know, to come and, you know, get these, uh, you know, these resources, these pamphlets, talk to us. And so that's how the Korean community started to enter into the Peer Resource Center. Well, thank you for being a pioneer. And I know you've been at it for decades. Okay, I'm not that old, but yeah. (laughs) I have much to learn from you. (laughs) I actually am that old. You're right. It has been decades. Yeah. But I've enjoyed it. I mean, I think what I enjoy about it is the ability to meet so many different people um, mm-hmm. who have such different experiences and then also find in the different experiences where are their areas of commonality. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, I think, and where we met is about, you know, reducing, well, really eliminating stigma. What does that yes. mean? So you're yes. doing that work too, right? Very much. So it's the pod- it's the podcast where we share conversations and stories about people that have lived experience as well as the specific issues. So kind of go back and forth from the individual lived experience and then some of the specific issues and kind of go back and forth on that. And if I have to lean in on one or the other, I lean in on the experience over the expertise because the experts already have their publications and books and publications, but uh, having stories really humanizes things and makes it accessible especially for those who struggle. And it's the ones that struggle as well as those that care for those who struggle that need the help with overcoming the stigma. And so that's why I'm working harder on that half of the equation while others can work on the research and development and the pharmaceuticals and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, They seem decently supported, although healthcare costs are very high. Yeah. Yeah. But like you, like Dr. Ansel has said, and you know, um, I do know him very well, by the way, <laughs> because oh, cool. I used to work for the federal government at the mm-hmm. at a sister agency, if you will, which was the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, while he was over at um, NIMH. And, you know, one of the things that we were trying to do at the same time he was at NIMH was trying to help people understand what does it mean when we talk about mental health recovery? Like mm-hmm. one of those concepts that people are like, well, wait, you can't recover from a mental illness. Once you have it, you have it for the rest of your life. It's like, you know, I don't even know what to say to that other than, you know, <laughs> this idea of, you know, re- recovery isn't about an endpoint. It's about the journey you're taking to be, you know, live your best life, um, have your best life, be your best self in all of the different aspects that you can do that uh, versus seeing it as, you know, my endpoint is you know, no more symptoms or my endpoint is that's not really what recovery is about. So the, the way that we had articulated it at the time, and um, actually it's still articulated that way too, mm. is um, health, home, purpose, community. Mm. And those were the four pillars of recovery, meaning, um, you know, having optimal health, including mental health and physical mm-hmm. health, 
um, having um, home, a safe place to live that that uh, mm. you want to live in, purpose, mm-hmm. having meaning and purpose in life, however, again, you want to define that. Mm. And then um, community, you know, um, which is around social inclusion, belonging, and having sort of friends, family, connections, all of those things. So that's great. And I could imagine too, when you're working with pastors and ministers and the like, that can, we can also talk about our spiritual wellness, you know, and our spiritual yes. growth as part of that whole health and wellness, right? Yeah, they're all connected. And the church typically only focuses on spiritual. And I think that's a very limited view. And I think the healthier churches are realizing, no, we want complete health, spiritual, mental, relational, emotional, educational, mm-hmm. wellness, financial, everything. So yeah, yeah. There's there's more openness to that as we realize it's one whole person. And yes. We want yes. All of that to be well, not just spiritually well and the rest struggle. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And how have the um, churches been as far as sort of their openness to thinking about doing some of this work, about talking about mental health and sermons and, you know, bringing it more into the life of the congregation? How, how, I know how it works at Saddleback very well <laughs> but how has this how has it worked with other like um chinese and asian ministers well i've, I've just started so i'm only a few weeks into it um i've talked with about a dozen different churches and pastors and they're uh, certainly receptive to it but getting the next steps planned out uh, that will take some ongoing work mm-hmm. and so it's those follow-up conversations and planning out what does a sermon series look like and what does this uh, sharing a story look like, and that's where you know I come alongside and help those churches and share with them some real life examples of how it's worked in others. And then it turns out adults tend to learn better from examples than a manual. So that's mm-hmm. really how I'm uh, looking to guide those. So I'm very encouraged that they're encouraged. So mm-hmm. uh, they're receptive and they really appreciate having the help instead of just having a book handed to them. So yeah. I think that's yeah. where uh, being Asian, working with Asian has been most helpful. And so what's the most, um, like out of all the things that you're doing, and I'm not going to have you pick the one that you find the mm. most like exciting or, you know, mm. the most joy, that's not really fair. Because <laughs> um, I know in my life, I couldn't pick one thing. But as you think about this work, what would be like the biggest outcome and biggest impact you would you would hope to have happen? Well, th- this very much is a convergence of my life experiences, both professionally, educationally, and personally, that my Mm -hmm. lived experience with mental health um, recovery and my education uh, through seminary and theology, as well as being Asian American and having some technical background and being able to leverage that through digital marketing and and social media, it's all coming together in uh, helping churches become safe places. And so the the short-term goal is to mobilize the 9,000 Asian American churches in America to become safe places. Mm-hmm. If I can even get to half of that, that would be a huge win because there's still a half that's resistant to even acknowledging mental illness as a real thing. And then what we're doing here could reach Asia. And there's 2 billion people there. And they're desperate for hope. The suicide rates are off the chart. The governments know it's a public health crisis, but they don't really know how to deal with it. 
Mm. And psychology isn't quick enough to deal with the urgency of the need. Mm. And my hope is the church can really mobilize quicker. Yeah. Being willing to share their lived experiences and help others can make a huge difference. And so that that would be the ultimate. Wow. And that's that's what I'm praying for. Well, that is seriously like a smart goal. If I've ever heard a smart goal, it's specific, it's measurable, it's actionable, yeah. realistic, and time bound. Yeah. Well, um, that, that's amazing. I don't, I could never articulate anything that clearly. But you know, as you were talking, I was thinking. First of all, I forgot that we had talked that we both been to seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, but you yourself were a pastor. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's. Pretty cool. I I was not a pastor. I did not do that. <laughs> is this also why the focus is on the church? Is that well, my aha moment with the church wasn't because of my personal um, background with it per se. But it was realizing the church is the only place that gathers Asian Americans every week. Okay. So while there are excellent Asian American mental health nonprofits and community centers and peer support and resources. It's really hard to reach them one at a time. But if I can be reaching them a hundred at a time, that can help a lot more people a lot more quickly. Wow. And so that was my aha moment. It's like, so as we wrestle with the social communal aspect of mental health, which the so-called biopsychosocial model has on the drawing board, there's so little development on how we actually do that social part. The faith community actually is the most social community that meets every week. I don't know of any other community that does that. I mean, there's communities that meet once a month for clubs and maybe sports and other things, but not the kind of social that you get in a faith community. So if if somehow we can get that collaboration partnership working well in our lifetime, I think that will be the breakthrough that helps a lot of people in mental health. That's brilliant. That's really brilliant. And, you know, even when I'm thinking about, you know, stigma reduction elimination, you know, how does that happen in a place where you have access to, you know, so many people at one time? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think we we think about things like social media. Well, I have access to a gazillion people on the social media platform, but are they captive? I mean, mm-hmm. that sounds really weird. I probably should reframe that because it sounds like you know you <laughs> put people in the church and lock them in there and they must stay, right? But but it is a very it's a very different type of interaction with yes. people on a consistent basis yes. than with social media. You don't know when right. people are checking in or checking out or paying attention or not paying attention. Yeah, I never mm-hmm. thought about that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So being on this side of the faith equation is like, yeah, there's something that we have that's really valuable to the social fabric of our humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so even if you take the quote unquote faith element aside, and there's some people that have uh, that are deconstructing or from other faiths, they they see faith's role a little differently. But it's inarguable that when you have a group of people that meet together every week, that does something to how we see the world and how we relate to each other. And how we can support each other in our mental health journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very, you know, maybe I wasn't thinking about this in this way because, you know, where I went to seminary, mm-hmm. they had a school of psych- uh, psychology. At, mm. at, you know, they had a school of psychology, a school of world missions. I don't think it's called school of world missions anymore. Mm-hmm. And a school of theology. So, mm. um, you know, when 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 I think about it, 
you know, they're training up psychologists to think about the role of spiritual life and spirituality in mm-hmm. somebody's um, whole health and well-being, especially as it relates to their emotional well-being, mm-hmm. or their mental health, I would say. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've never really thought about the the church and its role because I was in the role at the, you yeah, know, yeah. at the seminary. I didn't think about it outside of that context. Um, so um, as we sort of do this wrap up, I always ask people to do some wisdom dropping. You have dropped mad wisdom mm. during this whole podcast, um, uh-huh. many wows well, and thumbs up and claps mm. and things from me. But, you know, is there anything else that, you know, that you would like to wisdom drop before we end? Well, I'll go back to the time I had my personal crisis so that others who ever happen to wind up there or have a loved one or someone they care about wind up in crisis. Um, It's okay to ask for help. Uh, You're not alone. And there is hope. Those are the three things I constantly reminded myself during that really hard recovery time five years ago. And that helped me keep going. And that helped me get out of bed and just walk around and eat my meals. So have something that will renew your mind because it is a mental health thing. So hold on to something that will renew your mind. So those are three short sayings that help me renew my mind. And then because of my faith background, I memorized Psalm 23 and the Lord's prayer. So those those were the five things that I repeated constantly, multiple times a day until it started resetting my brain. And of course I learned breathing exercises because we're also biological beings. So in addition to the therapy and the medicine, learning to take care of the body biologically through walking, and I even did some high-intensity interval training at Orange Theory. So I added more cardio and exercise that helped me to get my body moving. Uh, There's an anxiety doctor, Russ Kennedy, who wrote a book about anxiety, that anxiety is not just a matter of the brain, it's a matter of the body. You can't think your way out of anxiety. You actually have to move your way out of it. So adding movement to your body, you know, in a digital age, we're often sedentary. So getting movement is really important. And then after this call, I'm taking a nap. So sleep, (laughs) sleep is really the anchor to my body and my rhythm. So I sleep about nine hours a night plus an afternoon nap. And so that's kind of a quick overview of the things that have really helped me in my recovery and self-care. And I hope that's useful to others in taking care of themselves too. Because um, in in retrospect, I realize as we're in the 21st century, we overuse our brains for everything. I mean, how much of our daily work is now tied up in emails and Excel spreadsheets and Word docs? Our brains were not designed for eight plus hours a day of doing cognitive work mm-hmm. and decision making. We have all these other muscles to to yeah. be using for work, and we don't get to because they're so connected to our brain work these days. And so our brains get worn out. It wasn't designed for that. So be good to yourself and add movement to to your daily routine, add a good, healthy dose of sleep and enjoy what you're eating. Love it. That sounds really great. And I, um, 
If you hadn't have said the thing about the nap, I would probably <laughs> be ending the podcast and going back uh, into my work email while my eyes are drooping a little bit because I could use a nice afternoon nap too. There was something about those kindergarten teachers. They knew what they were doing with the nap. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't have anything to do with being five years old. It had to do with we need our afternoon nap. So thank yes, you for that wonderful reminder. Mm -hmm. thank, you. thank you. And thank you so much for joining me. I'm I'm so pleased that we had this conversation. So thanks so much. Well, thank you for being a friend, Karis. All right. Sure thing. Sure thing. And uh, for our listeners, y'all know what to do. You can um, subscribe. You can like. You can comment. All those things you can do. But most important out of all, I wish you could share the podcast with other people who need to hear these messages. As GJ was saying, you know, you're not alone. You know, reach out. You know, there are other people who have been through it. That's the importance. That's why we have these conversations. So you can, mm -hmm. you know, kind of get that inspiration, that dose of, yeah, okay, I get it. I get it now. It's really helpful. So make sure to share. And with that, hope to see everybody on Hear Everybody, See Everybody, Talk to Everybody, whatever the ending is. See you next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Thanks much.